0: As you're studying this book and you come out of chapter 7, Paul shows us in the latter half of chapter 7 uh, the plight of man really within his own flesh. That's where Paul reveals to us that he had a problem with covetousness and a problem in his own life just dealing with the flesh. Uh, Some people have tried to explain chapter 7 away and say, well, that was before Paul was saved. No, not if you study it and you look at it in right context. You'll find out he's writing that as a saved man and experiencing it as a saved man. Then at the end of chapter 7, he gives us that question, who's going to deliver us or him from that body of death? And then, of course, chapter 8 shows us it's through the Spirit of God. So in chapter 8, we see much about the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the power of the Spirit, the fact that through the Spirit of God, we are no longer under condemnation. Then when we get to verse number 28, we begin to look at some things here this morning that I want to draw your attention to. And my thought today is this, the confidence of the church, the confidence of the church. I'm so glad this morning that I could stand and preach to you that being in the church and what I mean by that is not just being in a building called the church and even more than just being in the local church here of Little Ivy Baptist Church but being in the church, the body of Christ gives us a great confidence this morning. And I think that there are many believers that don't really understand the confidence that we should have in being in the church, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God. As I said earlier, that's where I put all my attention and all my effort is in the church. Jesus Christ died for the church. And here we find the church. Of course, the the book of Romans is a church epistle, but here specifically, Paul is talking about the church and being in the body of Christ in these verses. In verse 28, he said, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Now, the word church simply means ecclesia. In the Greek, it's a called out assembly. That's what being in the bride of Christ, the church, the body of Christ, is all about. It's not that God came down and pronounced salvation on the entirety of the world, but it's that Christ died on the cross and he is calling whosoever will to come unto him and to be saved. And those that answer that call and believe by faith and repent of their sin trust Christ as their Savior, then they are called into, through a supernatural work of God, into the body of Christ. We call that being born again. If you're here this morning, it's evident you've been born one time. That's the natural birth, and through that natural birth, we know there's going to come a day of natural death, and if you're not saved, there's going to come a day of spiritual death, a second death, we may call it. But thank God for the believer this morning that's been born again. If you've been born twice, uh, then you don't really die at all. You could say you die once, but really, we don't die at all. We just lay down the body of flesh, and we're ever in the presence of the Lord. So I want to look at a few things in our text this morning concerning the confidence of being in the church. Now notice, first of all, I'll give you three major things here this morning. We'll be finished. First of all, I want you to know this, that Paul deals here, beginning in verse 28, with the purpose of the church. Well, I'm so thankful this morning that before the foundation of the world, in the mind and in the heart of God, God saw the church. In the Old Testament, it was a mystery to those Old Testament prophets. They could not see the hill called Calvary. They could see some things leading up and prophesied some great things, but they could not envision and grasp and lay hold of of what you and I have as being a New Testament believer in Christ. We find the purpose here in the calling in verse 28. I already read this to you, but Paul tells us here, we know, this. that's a, that's a term of confidence. Paul didn't say, and we might know, or maybe we know, but he said, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God. Now, I want to remind you in this verse this morning, don't misread it. It did not say that all things are good, but it did say all things work together for good. There is a big difference there. You say, preacher, how's cancer good? Well, within itself, it's not good. Our disappointments in life and disease and and trials and heartaches good? Within themselves, they're not good. But the scripture tells us here, being part of the church, the bride of Christ, we know that all things work together for good. There's the difference. To them that love God. And here the terminology of loving God is in the context of the church. And you're going to see it as we go through these verses. He said, to them who are thee called, that's the church, according to his purpose. God has a purpose. Again, before time ever began, before Adam was ever created in the garden, before the earth was even spoken into existence in the heart and the mind of God, God had a purpose of bringing about the church. And that's exciting this morning. That's why I love the church. That's why I put my effort and my time and my treasures and my talent toward the church because it is the foundational purpose that God brought man into this world for is to be saved, be called out, and become part of the church, the bride of Christ. In Colossians 1.13, Paul said this, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son. The calling here refers to we as sinners that have been called out of this world The Bible tells us you're in the world if you're a believer but not of the world. We've been called out of this world and called into the family of God, the kingdom of light. If you're saved this morning, you answered the call one day. If you're born again, there was a day in your life, there was an hour, there was a time where the word of God, the Spirit of God took the Word of God, whether you heard it preached from a pulpit, whether you heard it witnessed to, whether you read it from a gospel tract, were begotten by the Word. The Word of God pierced your heart. The Holy Spirit drove the word home. He opened up your understanding, as did the Lord open the understanding of Lydia in Acts chapter 16. You realized you were a lost sinner and you turned to Christ as your Savior and you were born again. It's not a work of the flesh. It's not a work that we can do but it's the work of God. We just believe and trust Him by faith and He saves that sinner that calls upon Him. So you find there's a calling here. If you're in the church, the body of Christ, you've been called into the body. You listen, you may be in the physical uh, location of the church but yet not be in the body of Christ. There are many this morning that are going to sit on church pews. There are many today that have their name written in a church book somewhere on the roll, on the record as being a member of such and such local church, but they've never answered the call to be born again. I've talked to people before and they say, Well, preacher, I've always been a Christian all my life. That's the wrong answer right there. You may have been brought up in church all of your life. You may have been brought up in a Christian family and all you know as far as the atmosphere that you've lived in is Christianity. But there comes a day in the life of every soul, every individual that has the mental capacity to understand. There comes a day in our life we we are confronted by the gospel of the death, burial and resurrection of Christ and we have to make that decision in our heart. Are we going to believe and receive Christ as our Savior? In John chapter 1, verse 12, he said, As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. If you'll notice as we go through these verses here this morning, you're going to find this terminology speaks of collectiveness, again referring to the church. And that's very important when we get down here a couple verses. So here's the calling. That's the purpose of the church, for God to call sinners out of the human race that is sinful by birth and sinful by nature and call us through the work of Calvary into the Bride of Christ. Then you find the conforming. Let me say this to you this morning. If you're called, God's working a work of conforming in your life. If there's no conforming in your life, then odds are you've never been called. You've heard people before say, Well, I got saved such and such years ago or such and such time ago, and there's never been any change in their life. There's never been any conforming from the old man to the new. No change, no conversion, we often call it. That is not a biblical salvation. I do not believe this morning in a works salvation. The Bible speaks against that. But I do believe in a real salvation that works. Amen. If you're truly born again, it's going to begin a work in your life that is not going to stop throughout uh, till we get to eternity. And then we'll be just like him. Look at the conforming in verse 29. Now, we get into some terminology here that sometimes scares us Baptists. But listen, don't be afraid of the Bible. And don't be afraid of this word I'm going to look at. A couple words here, foreknowledge and predestinate. Those words have been hijacked by the Calvinists in these days. But I want to remind you it's Bible terminology, amen? It's not Calvinistic terminology, it's Bible terminology. Let's look at it in the text this morning. In verse 29, he said, For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now you notice this morning Paul in verse 29 is talking about a conforming. He's talking about a changing. When an individual gets born again, there begins a work in our life to conform us to the image of Christ. Often we call this the work of sanctification. There is a positional sanctification the moment you get saved. You're, You're deemed sanctified, justified in the sight of God, fit to go to heaven. But then there's that practical or some call it a progressional work of sanctification that begins to work on us and make us more like Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 Paul said this, I beseech you therefore brethren by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice So Paul reminds us here that through the call of salvation, there comes a conforming in our life. And I want you to look back in verse 29 at the terminology. He said, for whom, speaking of God, he did foreknow. Let's stop right there just a moment. If you're a Bible believer, you shouldn't have any problems with understanding or just believing. Maybe not understanding, but just believing that God foreknows everything. We believe in the sovereignty of God. Again, sometimes when you say that, people say, are you a Calvinist? No, I'm not a Calvinist, nor am I the son of a Calvinist. Or nobody in my family that I know of is a Calvinist. Amen. Uh, That word foreknow, the foreknowledge of God, simply means that God knows the end from the beginning. I don't choke on that. I don't have a problem with that. You did hear about the Calvinists the other day that fell down the steps. And I'm picking on him this morning. But you heard about the Calvinists that fell down the steps, didn't you? He got up, brushed himself off, and said, boy, I'm glad that's over with. Amen. He, he, some of you don't get it. You don't know what I'm talking about. You'll, you'll get that after a while. Amen. Talk to somebody that knows. Amen. But here you find that this word foreknowledge simply means that God knows the beginning from the end. Don't let that bother you. God knows whosoever will can be saved and whosoever will be saved. It is a whosoever will gospel, but God knows the beginning from the end. He knows every person that's going to make up the bride of Christ when we all get to heaven. We sung that song just a little while ago. When we all get to heaven, God knows who all that's going to be. And the gospel is sent out to every creature. And it is a whosoever will gospel. But yet you and I realize there are some that receive and some reject. And God knows who that is. He knows who the church is. Don't let that stump you this morning. We don't know. We don't have that ability. But God does. So the Bible tells us here in verse number 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. Don't you understand this this morning that the terminology of predestination is always applied to the church. It's not applied individually. If you start applying predestination and election to individual people, you're going to get yourself all in a bunch of mess and you're going to get off on the wrong doctrine. Matter of fact, the first mention of election is mentioned in the book of Isaiah. I believe it's chapter 42 and it's speaking of Christ himself. So election predestination is always... In the realm of Christ and the realm of the church You have to understand that I heard a pastor explain it this way one time Thought it was a good little illustration He said as you walk into the door of salvation Over the door it says Whosoever will And when you walk through that door of salvation and you look back to the header, on the inside it says, from the foundation of the world, amen? God knows who's going to be saved. God knows. He reaches out again to whosoever will. Don't misunderstand me this morning. Some of you are looking at me funny, but I want to make this clear this morning. God knows and reaches out to whosoever will, but He knows who's going to be saved. Because He is God, whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate to be conformed to the image of His Son. That simply means this morning, if you're saved by the grace of God, you are being conformed to the image of His Son. If you're a child of God, it is the purpose of God in your life to make you like Christ, to make you like Jesus. When we stand before Him one of these days, we're going to have that glorified body. Our sin nature is going to be done away with. I I wish I could tell you it's done away with now, but I'd just be lying to you. Uh, When you get saved, there's no eradication of the sin nature. You got the same rotten flesh and sin nature you had before you got saved. And that's why we battle, and that's why we struggle, and that's what Romans chapter 7 is all about. If you don't understand the internal struggle of the life of a believer You go study the latter half of Romans 7 And it will open your eyes As Paul said, that that I would not, I do And that that I would, I do not He's describing in detail the inward struggle of an individual that's saved And has to fight that flesh nature But one of these days, because of the work that God is doing in every believer One of these days, that flesh nature is going to be dealt with That corruption is going to put on incorruption That mortal's going to put on immortality And no longer will we have that battle We're going to be the finished product Conformed into the image of His dear Son What a a wonderful day that's going to be You know the purpose of salvation Is given right here in verse number 29 A lot of times we think Well the purpose of salvation was to get me Or get you and I out of hell No that's a good benefit of being saved But that's not the purpose of salvation The purpose of salvation was to make us like Him The purpose of salvation was to restore in us through the last Adam uh, what the first Adam lost in the garden because of sin. So there's a conforming here and Paul mentions that in verse 29. Don't be afraid of the terminology of foreknowledge. And a predestination. He said that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Talking about Christ. He is the firstborn. And whosoever, all that believe after him are going to be conformed into his image. Then you notice in verse number 30 the conclusion that Paul draws here. The purpose of the church. Here's a great illustration. This is is a power packed verse in verse 30. Look at it as we go through it slowly. He said, moreover, it even gets better than this, is what Paul saying. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And whom he called, them he also justified. When you get time, go back to Romans chapter 3, study the doctrine of justification. It's an amazing doctrine. It's a supernatural doctrine. How that God can take a wicked, hell-deserving sinner like you and I. I mean, somebody that doesn't deserve to be saved. We don't deserve the mercy of God. We don't deserve the grace of God. The Scripture teaches us all like sheep have gone astray. You might think there's something good in you this morning, but I'm here to tell you on the authority of God's Word, there's nothing good in any of us. We're all rotten to the core. All of our righteousness is His filthy rags. And through the doctrine of justification, when we believe on Christ and trust Him as our Savior, we are deemed accounted just In the sight of God. Now, I'm telling you, that ought ought to make a Methodist shout right there, amen. That ought to get us excited this morning. That God would take you and I, just a dirty, rotten sinner, save us by His grace, and stamp justified on us. It's an amazing doctrine this morning. I, I never can get a hold of it. The more I read it, the bigger it gets. The more I study it, the more amazing it gets. Somebody said one time that justification means uh, uh, without sin, and yes, but somebody else went a little farther and said it means uh, not just just if I had not sinned, but just if I had never been a sinner, amen? I'm telling you, justification deems us righteous in the eyes of God. That's what happened with Abraham. If you study Abraham, Abraham is Paul's poster child of salvation, He refers to it many times in the book of Romans, in the book of Galatians. And Abraham was justified by God. And how was he justified? By works? No. You study the life of Abraham. Abraham, the works in Abraham's life of circumcision, was given in chapter 17, if I remember right, which was after chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. In chapter 15, God takes Abraham in verse 6, out on the hillside one night, and said, "Abraham, I tell you what I'm going to do." Now, Abraham's an old man at this time; his body is dead as far as bringing forth any more children. And God said to Abraham, He said, "I tell you what I'm going to do, Abraham." He said, I, "I'm going to make your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the stars of the sky." And the Bible said in Genesis 15:6 that Abraham believed God, and at that moment, at that instant, it was accounted unto him for righteousness. At that moment, Abraham was justified by faith. Don't come tell me you don't get saved by faith in the Old Testament. Don't bark up that tree. Because I'm going to tell you what, that dog won't hunt, amen. It's just not the truth. I've heard people try to say, well, they were saved by works in the Old Testament. No, the works were the product of their faith. Somebody said, well, if Noah hadn't built an ark, it was works that he built the ark. No, Hebrews tells us that he moved with fear. Why? By faith. It's all by faith in who Christ is and what he's done. So here you find the conclusion of this matter here. It's wonderful. He deals with justification, He said, in whom he justified, in verse 30, them he also glorified. That's for the believer this morning. That's for the church. The purpose of God bringing forth and bringing in the church into the world and birthing individuals into the family of God is to make us like his son, to justify us and to glorify us all throughout eternity. We're going to be with Christ Jesus. What a wonderful truth this morning. So you see the purpose of the church. I'm telling you, that alone would excite me enough to want to be part of the church. If you happen to be here this morning and you're not saved, you're missing out on the greatest thing you could ever be a part of. You're missing out on not an organization but a living organism, which is the church, the body of Christ, that's going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven forever and forever. You see the purpose of the church. Then Paul goes on in our text. We're talking about the confidence of the church. These are great verses this morning on the security of the believer. You can come show me one verse this morning that will make you think that you can lose your salvation. And I bet I can show you five to one that you can't. Amen. It's throughout the scripture of the eternal security of the believer. And again, I mentioned this, I think, in a message, maybe Wednesday night. That A lot of times when you talk like that, people say, well, if I believe that, I'd live any old way I want to. Well, uh, what is it that you want to do so bad? Amen. If you want to do something so bad, something's wrong in your heart anyway. I don't want to do things bad. I do sometimes, but I don't want to. And because God saved me and I understand just a little bit about eternal security, Eternal salvation is the book of Hebrews' words. It, it makes me want to serve Him more. It makes me want to be faithful to Him because of God that would love me enough to keep me eternally. Listen, I don't know about you this morning. I think you're probably the same boat I am. But I can look back on my life since I got saved some 32 years ago. And I've done enough since I've been saved to be cast into hell. I've made enough bad decisions and wrong things since I've been saved for God to justifiably throw me into the flames of hell. But thank God He saved me by His grace and I'm kept by the power of God. And so are you this morning if you're in the church. Look at the power of the church beginning in verse 31. In verse 31 we see the person of power. See this is where our power's at this morning. It's not in us. A lot of times when people think about that, they think, well, it's not in me, so I must not have any power. Well, it's not in me either, but look who it's in. Look in verse 31. Paul said, what shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? There's where the power's at this morning. You say, how do you know you're eternally kept? Because the Bible tells me God is for me. And again, if you'll notice the wordage. As we go down through these verses, let me just draw attention to you. This will help you a little bit if you're struggling with this. Go back to verse 28. In verse 28, he uses the word we. In verse 28, he uses the word them. In verse number 29, he uses the word many brethren, the phrase many brethren. In verse 30... You go down through there, he uses the word them a couple times. In verse 31, he said, What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? All that wordage that's used in there is speaking of a group collectively. He's talking about the church here. He's not talking about just one person set aside. He's talking about us and them and many brethren and we. And He's talking about being in the church in the body of Christ. That's the only secure place you can be is in the church. And again, I'm not talking about sitting on a church pew. Sadly, this morning, there will be people that sit on church pews all their life and they'll lift up their eyes in hell because they were never in the real body of Christ. They were never born again. Being in the church is to be born again, is to trust Christ as Savior. It's a supernatural transaction that only the Lord can perform in our life when we trust Him. So you see, the person of power in verse 31, Paul said, If God be for us... Who can be against us? I'll promise you something this morning. God is for the church. I'll promise you that. I'm telling you, you can get out here and you can raise Cain and sinners can act like the devil and live wicked lives. But when they start putting their hand against the church, look out. I'm going to tell you this morning, I'd fight a lot of things, but I would not fight the church this morning. I wouldn't put my hand against God's people. I wouldn't put my hand against the church. I wouldn't put my hand against God's man this morning that's rightly dividing this book and walking in truth. Because when you put your hand against the church, you have put your hand against God Almighty. She is the bride of Christ. Most of you men would agree with me. All of you men that are married would agree with me this morning that if you if you would get riled up if somebody was messing with your bride and same here and I'll promise you God will get stirred up. There, there's a world out there this morning that thinks they're going to overrun the church. We'll see that down here in just a few moments in some verses. They think they're going to destroy the church. They are signing their death warrant when they come against the church. Amen. I'm telling you the church is going through. The church is going to The church is preserved I'm trying not to get ahead of myself this morning Why? Because the power of the person of who God is He is for us this morning Notice not only the person of power in verse 31 I want you to notice the provision of power in verse 32 In verse 32 Paul reminds us here He that spared not his own son Talking about God giving his son Jesus Christ He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us. There's that collective word again. Us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Paul speaks of the provision of the power. The power, the person of the power is God. And the provision of the power is through Christ. He is the channel of blessing. He is the the head of the church. Ephesians tells us Christ is the head of the church. He is that provision for us. We have power because of what Jesus Christ did on Calvary. I don't have power to walk a life of purity in myself. That's not in me. That's not in you. I don't have a power to live above reproach in my own intellect or my own ability. No, that power comes from Christ and Christ alone. And the only way to enjoy that power is to be in the church. That's why you got some people that are religious, quote-unquote religious, but they can't live right because they don't have the liver in them, the Holy Spirit. You get the Holy Spirit when you're born into the family of God. We believe as New Testament Bible-believing Baptists, we believe in the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That That is an amazing truth this morning. That's an amazing doctrine. It's something the Old Testament saints didn't have. The Holy Spirit was there and present. He's always been. He's co-eternal, co-equal, part of the Godhead. He's always been, but he would come upon those Old Testament saints from time to time to empower them. But in the New Testament, we sing the song, He abides, He abides. Hallelujah, He abides. Amen. When I'm having a good day, He abides. When I'm having a bad day, like Christian mentioned this morning, He abides. When I'm doing things I'm supposed to do, hallelujah, He abides. When I'm missing the mark, I can still testify this morning, He abides. Amen. Because He lives in us, the Holy Spirit of God. Amen. Thank God for that. Now you see the provision of power, the eternal act that empowered the church was the gospel, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then you know, some, notice something else about the power of the church. Not only the person of power, not only the provision of power, but in verse 33, Paul deals with the purifying of power. Notice this. This is one of those scriptures that just gets better and better. Just heads up the mountaintop to the peak. In verse number 33, look at what he said. He said, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. I already mentioned to you about the doctrine of justification. Romans 3.24 said this, Being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. You see, God has determined you and I that are born again justified in the sight of God. And if we're justified in the sight of God, it really doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what my neighbor thinks. It doesn't matter what my coworker thinks. If I am justified in the sight of God, then I am just. And if you're saved this morning, you have been justified in the sight of God. Do you remember the story of Lot in Genesis 19? If we didn't have the account of Lot in Peter, we would read Genesis 19 and say, Lot must not have been a saved man. Lot must not have been a believer because the life of Lot was a horrible life. I heard a message one time on the lousy life of Lot. And boy, that's the truth. He had a lousy life because he made lousy choices and lousy decisions. And that stands to reason with us this morning. This is not the message, but I'll give you this and remind you. You make bad decisions, you're not going to have a good life. You make bad decisions against this Bible, your life's not going to turn out the way God wants it to. But you flip over into Peter and you find out in Peter's uh, epistles there, he said that Lot was just which simply means he had been justified, he had believed, he had trusted. I know it was before the cross, but just like Abraham believed God, he was justified. His nephew Lot believed God, he was justified. And even though Lot was probably the worst example that a believer ought to be, he was still just in the eyes of God. That is not a license to sin, that is not a license to live any way you want to, but it shows the power of God and the provision of God of taking care of his own. So you you find here this purifying power in verse number 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. You and I can rest assured this morning that if we're saved by the grace of God, we are just in the sight of God. We have that promise. We have that hope. We have that security when we pillow our head at night because of what Christ did on Calvary and our receiving of Him that we are declared just in the sight of God. That's where the power is at. Then notice the praying power in verse number 34. Paul goes on to say this. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. He here is talking about the power or the prayer of power, this power of the church. We've got an intercessor this morning. 24-7, 365 days a year, we've got the intercessor, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm telling you, I don't think we understand what that means. To have our intercessor, Christ, sitting at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Hebrews 7.25 said this, Wherefore he is able also... To save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him. There's another verse about eternal salvation. Uttermost. That means every bit of it. All the way. Nothing lacking. Seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. While you and I are sitting in the house of God this morning, we have an advocate with the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And every time you mess up and the law of God would say, kill him or kill her, condemn him or condemn her, Jesus Christ leans over and says, he's one of mine, she's one of mine. Amen. Ever interceding. That, that's the wonderful work of the power of the gospel in the life of the believer. And it's only in the life of one who is in the church. Through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, through salvation, the power of the church. Now I'm going to give you one more thing this morning. We're talking about the confidence of the church. I hope that if you're saved this morning, I hope you have confidence in the church. I'm telling you, we're living in a day where a lot of people want to bypass the church. We're living in a day where a lot of people say, Well, preacher, I can just sit at the house and do just as good as down at the house of God. No, you cannot. I'll promise you that. Amen. If God had wanted you at the house, He wouldn't have put Hebrews 10, 25 in to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together. And you can argue about that all you want, but it says what it means and it means what it says. Amen. The church is an assembly. I realize there are some in the nursing homes this morning that are not physically able to assemble. I realize there are some from time to time that get sick. And they're not physically able to assemble. But if you have the ability in your body. And let me just say this. If you can go to Walmart on Sunday night, you can go to church on Sunday morning. Amen. If you you can be wherever else you got to be during the week, you can go to church. I see some people say, Preacher, we're too feeble. We can't make it to church. But boy, you'll see them at the restaurants in the Walmart. And back a few years ago, somehow or another, you could only catch COVID at church. You couldn't catch it at Walmart or somewhere else. How absurd that is. Amen. And there's still people that claim to be saved and right with God that believe that way. It makes absolutely no sense to me, amen. If I'm going to be anywhere, it's going to be at church. If I can't go anywhere else, I'm going to find myself at the house of God. If I have to drag myself to the house of God, I'm going to be at the church because that's where my heart is. That's where my desire is. When God saved me, He hooked me up. He yoked me in to the church. Amen. It's my life. And not only is it my life, but it's the crowd I'm going to be with throughout eternity. And you too if you're saved. Now let's notice this morning the third thing I want to give you here and I'll be done. Let's look at what I like to call the preservation of the church. Now, again, we were picking on Calvinists just a little while ago in the fifth letter of the tulip theory. and By the way, it is a theory. And I, I disagree with all of them. You've got five-point Calvinists. You would call them a hyper Calvinist. You've got some three-point Calvinists. And some of, some of the big commentators that a lot of men like to read after are, are Calvinistic in their nature. You've got to be careful about that. You've got to sift through it. Let, let the Bible stand true. Let, let God be true and every man a liar. Say, Preacher, I'm reading the commentary and it contradicts with the Bible. What do I do? Believe the Bible. Don't believe the commentator. You know why? He's just a commentator. Amen. Just like you and me. And listen, there, there's all kinds of different ideology, but that, that P in the tulip theory, they call it perseverance. But that gives you the idea of we're doing something, somehow or another, to keep ourselves, and that's contrary to the Scripture. I like to say preservation. That's a much better terminology. Look here in verse 35 through the end of the chapter. Paul shows us the preservation of the church. Let me give you three things here and I'll finish. Notice the conflict in verse 35 and thirty-six. Paul now becomes the devil's advocate as he often does throughout the scripture. And he said this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, now here in verse 36 he's quoting Psalm 44, 22. As it is written, For thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter." Paul is talking about the conflict here. This is the conflict that the believer the church would have with the world. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? You you think about under the Roman Empire how much persecution there was on the believer during the days of Rome and when that empire ruled the earth. There was great persecution on the believer. The early church faced great persecution under the Roman Empire. So they knew what persecution was about. And no doubt the world and the flesh and the devil would come along and say, hey, you're getting persecuted because God don't love you. This is happening to you because God doesn't care about you or God's not able to keep you. Well, Paul settles that here in this question. He said, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril of sword?" He's asking a question here. Can any of these things separate us from the love of Christ? Can any of these things uh, make our salvation null null and void? You and I as believers know that that's not true and Paul's going to answer that in just a minute. But it's interesting, as he often does, he quotes the Old Testament. In verse 36, again, I told you, he quotes Psalm 44 too, which said, Yea, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Something interesting about Psalm 44 too, Psalm 44 is one of the psalms to the sons of Korah. You remember Korah, Dathan, and Abiram that rebelled against Moses, and the earth opened up and swallowed them, and Preacher said one time they went to hell with their boots on. Amen. God didn't even give them time to get their boots off. I'm telling you, God's serious about going against His plan and His purpose and His authority. So He opened up the earth, He swallowed them. The sons of Korah were always under that shadow of the rebellion of their daddy. And in Psalm 44, if you study Psalm 44, they're crying out to God. God, we feel like we're separated from you. God, we feel like we're sheep killed all the day long. So Paul is taking this reference from Psalm 44, which was a psalm for the sons of Korah, to establish the point here that some would say or some would even think that there's something that could separate the church, that somehow or another we wouldn't be preserved, somehow or another we wouldn't be protected. But look in verse 37, Paul brings the contradiction to this conflict. In verse 37 he said, Nay, not at all. He said, In all these things we are more... Than conquerors through him that loved us. Paul said all these bad things that are coming against us. That goes back to verse 28. He said all these bad things that are coming against us. It just proves we are more than conquerors through him that loved us through Christ Jesus. He said preacher how can you be more than a conqueror? Well I heard it described this way one time. A conqueror wins the battle. Especially in Bible days and days of the Roman empires. When an invading force would come in and conquer a country The conqueror would win. The conqueror would defeat the enemy. He would defeat the other king. But to be more than a conqueror means he got all the spoil. And he would come in quite often. You can read about it in the book of Joshua when they were going into Canaan land. And we'll get to study about that if we get that far on Wednesday nights in our study of the book of Joshua. They would come into Canaan land and and quite often when they they would conquer those kings, somebody would put their foot on the neck of those kings establishing themselves as being in control, that that king could no longer rise back up and hurt them or overpower them. And Paul tells us here, he gives us the, the, the uh, understanding here that we are more than conquerors through Christ that loved us. You know what that means? That means it's not going to rise up again. That means we don't have a 30-day salvation, and as soon as we do something wrong, all of a sudden we're going to be the underdog again. All of a sudden we're going to lose again. Or a year down the road, something goes wrong in our life, we make a misstep, all of a sudden we lose our salvation, and the king, the old king's on top again. No, he said we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. You know this from studying the Old Testament. Again, in the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua is a tremendous book. I I tell you, every time I think about it, I get excited. But in the book of Joshua, it establishes the six cities of refuge. And they were strategically placed throughout the land of Israel where if a man unwittingly took the life of another man, maybe an accident, it was a premeditated murder or something like that, he took the life of another individual, he could run to that city of refuge. He would plead his case with the elders at the gate. If If they received him, they'd bring him in. And as long as he was in that city of refuge, he was safe as long as the high priest lived. Now you say, what does that mean to us this morning? Well, the book of Hebrews says we have such great a high priest, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're safe as long as he's alive. And the last time I checked, that's forever. Amen. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. There's the contradiction to that conflict But here's the confidence this morning, verse 38 and 39. The preservation of the church. Look at this. He said, Paul said, for I am persuaded. What he's saying here, there's no doubt. There's no no little bit of doubt. There's no little bit of misunderstanding. He said, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know why we can't be separated this morning? Because of who he is. David the psalmist, when he sinned with Bathsheba and wrote about it in Psalm 51, the terminology, the wordology that David used, he said, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. He didn't say my salvation. Somebody say, well, I think I can lose my salvation. Listen, if you're really saved, it's not your salvation anyway. It's His. It's what He's done. He's holding on to us. He's taking care of us. We are preserved in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, I want to say this morning in closing this thought, I have all confidence this morning in being in the church. I'm thankful this morning. February the 17th, 1991, I got born again. I got birthed in to the family of God. And the Lord placed me in the body of Christ. He placed me in the church. Because of who He is and because of what He's done, I've got the confidence this morning that no matter what happens down here, it's going to be good. No matter what happens down here, we're going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. But see, if you're not saved this morning, you don't have that confidence. If you're trusting your works, you don't have that confidence. If I was trusting my ability this morning, I couldn't produce enough salvation to make it through the rest of the day. If I was trusting my ability this morning, I couldn't lay my head down tonight and go to sleep. I'd be afraid that if I were to die in the night or something was to happen, I would lift up my eyes in hell, but I don't have to worry about that today because I'm trusting Him and Him alone. I'm trusting in what Christ did on Calvary. And Paul reminds us in these verses this morning of the confidence of the church. We don't have confidence in ourselves for who we are, but we have confidence in the church because of who He is this morning. And I'm glad, again, according to Ephesians chapter 1, we're seated with Christ in heavenly places. Do you know this this morning? I know you do, but I just want to remind you. Do you know that according to Ephesians chapter 1, if you're genuinely saved, that in the mind of God, you're already in heaven with Christ? Now, you chew on that for lunch this afternoon, amen. I'm telling you, that'll help you this morning. God has already seen us. You go to the book of Revelation. John said, I saw a number which no man could number. Hey, guess what? If you're saved this morning, he saw you, he saw me. We're there with Christ already. We're we're just waiting for the body to meet up with the head, amen. I'm thankful for that. We have the Word of God on it this morning, the confidence of the church of being born again. If you don't have that confidence this morning, you can. If you'll trust Christ as your Savior, I hope this will help you today. Let's stand, heads bowed, musicians, if you'll make your way up, get a song. I want you to let the Spirit of God search your heart this morning. Are you born again